James always manages to, to make this sound dirty. No, 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 I was saying really, to him really, last I've night got, that got, it was so wholesome in my mind before he read it to me. No, I've got a proper, I've got a proper dirty bit coming up later. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. And me, Joe Hamia. And today we're tackling a book that was voted the third favourite of the entire nation in the BBC Big Read project of 2003, behind only Lord of the Rings and Pride and Prejudice. Uh, in 2004, the author was named in a BBC poll the 11th most influential person in British culture. In 2019, he was knighted for services to literature. And for our purposes, it's also the only children's book in the history of the world that's ever been longlisted for the Booker Prize. Uh, and it is uh, The Amber Spyglass by Philip Pullman. And this is our second week of podcasting, and I must say we're absolutely delighted with the response so far. Uh, lots of lovely comments, um, lots of lovely subscribers, and uh, so far so good. Except for one thing, Joe. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm going to cut across all your really genuine thanks, which I do, which I do echo. But I'm going to be petty because I deserve it. So, um, listeners of uh, last week's episode two uh, will know that I put up a really robust defence of the main mm. character's sanity. Robustish. Well. Translator of the vegetarian by Han Kang, Deborah Smith, <laughs> agrees with me. Oh, <laughs> She's written in to say, such a rigorous and informed defense of Yong Hai's sanity. And she's also said, to both our credit, uh, uh, engaging, thoughtful, and generous uh, conversation retranslation. But haha, yeah. I win. <laughs> yeah, you absolutely do. I was going to say, what, what the hell does she know? But actually, she, she's the translator of the blooming book. But okay, then, one, one, score one for Jen. And, um, I and, will be back. And actually, no, maybe maybe this puts us back to nil, because I also very briefly spoke with Patricia Lockwood to let her know that I was in her corner. This is from episode one in which I said that I thought she'd been robbed for the prize uh, that year. And she wrote in to say, no, 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 no. Debut books that win are cursed. And I had to write back to her and say that, no, I think Douglas Stewart broke that curse because he's doing all right, isn't he? He you, is doing you all know, right. Young Mungo's selling well. He's still at Hay Festival. He's still having a good time. So, you know, Patricia, do, give yourself some credit. You should have won. You should have won. Oh, that's good. So some people are, people are actually listening. Blimey. <laughs> this is great news. The, the slightly less good news is that we now come to the bit of the uh, show where we have the pleasure stroke hideous ordeal of getting to know each other with the aid of probing questions that we put to each other. Oh, Joe, what have you got for me this week? <laughs> so my question to you this week is actually related to the book we're reading. In uh, The Amber Spyglass and indeed in the His Dark Materials universe, uh, characters have an external... Uh, manifestation of their soul called demons um and it's it's an it takes the shape of an animal and it's usually a sort of dead giveaway as to what sort of person you are so my question to you james is what form would your demon take so in other words your question to me is what is the essence of me yes <laughs> what's the you... essence of your soul james <laughs> I, told, I told you it was an ordeal um <laughs> well actually just to deflect for a second no no no, into, into literary criticism, the idea of a demon God. that represents your entire essence um, works really well in the book. But thinking about it now <laughs> makes me wonder, actually, do we have an essence? Because I, I struggle to find out the one thing that sums up the rich complexity of all that I am. Mm -hmm. So I wondered if I could palm you off with a chameleon. Um, <laughs> but a chameleon, you know, can change and then slightly gets around the idea that there is one single essence of exactly who you are. But anyway, if uh, I, I suppose I do quite like people to like me. Okay. Is a characteristic of mine, so maybe a sort of slightly needy, tail wagging dog. Oh, do you know what kind of dog? Uh, no, one of those uh, sort of sort of mongrel but you know, um, 
but you know it does to, goes up to people doesn't completely bound up you know doesn't grab their legs and go onto their shoulders but just sort of hangs around <laughs> oh, i don't know <laughs> well, in fact in fact in fact not only that i'm coming straight back at you because my question to you is what would your demon be then joe see i i prepared james and i oh, thought okay. about this for for about half an hour, and um, I did like three internet quizzes I, and disagreed with all of them. <laughs> I thought about it for about five days, and I thought we get anywhere. <laughs> um, but I think mine would be an otter. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, it would be an otter because otters are amazing. They are playful and they learn really fast. They're intelligent and. They can survive alone, but they're also really fond of contact. They like hugging. And I feel like that's just, I'm an otter. That's very good. <laughs> I, would, I would be an otter. Okay, okay, you win that one. Much better answer than my, <laughs> than my flanneling about. Um, yeah, because you, you apparently don't have an essence. <laughs> one single essence? I mean, we, we, we can maybe return to this when we, okay. when we, when we, when we talk about the, Philip, the demons in the book. Philip but, Pullman, uh, but, but, if you're but, but, listening, please write in and explain to us whether we have an essence or not. Single essence, Philip Pullman. Um, but actually, so let's move on to this. Obviously, The Amber Spyglass is the third book in the series, um, His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman, uh, or as he would say, the last third of a, of, a, of a single book. So I think we do need a bit of background, Joe. Can you, can you fill us in on the His okay. Dark Materials universe? The His Dark Materials books are a trilogy comprised of Northern Lights, or as it was published in the States, The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass, which is the book we're discussing today. Pullman's universe contains a multiverse, but it's less Marvel and more astrophysics. And our protagonist is a girl called Lyra Balakwa, or as she's renamed, Lyra Silvertongue. In Lyra's specific world, um, people have externalized manifestations of their soul called demons, and these take the shape of animals. Lyra's world is also governed by a version of the, I would say Catholic, but potentially just Christian church called the Magisterium. And in this biblical retelling, God is named the authority and his bidding is carried out by a regent called the Metatron. Lyra's world also contains a visible version of what we might call dark matter. And in the book, it's called Dust with a capital D. What exactly dust is, is the main point of contention for these three books. For the Magisterium, Dust is the root of all sin, but more scientifically minded people such as Lyra's father, Lord Azriel, believe that dust may in fact be the centre to all being or human consciousness, that it, it may be something completely apart from what the church believes it to be. So Lord Azriel is hell-bent on finding out exactly what dust is as a way to diminishing the power of the magisterium. And in the first book, on this mission, he kills Lyra's best and only friend, Roger, in this pursuit, which sets Lyra on her own path to finding out the meaning of dust. In the second book, she picks up an ally from our world. His name is Will Parry, and he becomes the bearer of an item called the Subtle Knife, which can cut portals through to other worlds, and it becomes an immensely useful tool for them. Lyra's parents are Lord Azriel and Mrs. Coulter. They give her up when she's a baby to the care of Oxford College in this parallel world that's called Jordan. 
Lord Asriel is an, an aristocrat with highly scientific pursuits. By book three, he's a rebel leader determined to take on the kingdom of heaven. Whereas Miss Coulter is kind of his polar opposite. She is a servant of the magisterium, quite high ranking, as well as an academic. And she, in book one, runs something called the General Ablation Board, which separates children from their demons as a way to prevent them from acquiring sin, which is really a way to say to stop them from ever reaching sexual maturity or, or, growing or up, free will or, or moving or from a experience. Yeah. Um, but as she moves through the novel, her re-evolving love for her daughter leads her to stray from the church. And I think the only other thing that's really necessary to us is that there's a prophecy with Lyra at the heart of it given in book one, naming her the second Eve, as in uh, Adam and Eve, as in Eve who succumbs to temptation from a serpent, eats an apple from the tree of knowledge of good of evil and brings about the fall of mankind. The church believes that she'll bring about the fall of mankind, but in this telling, it's worded more as she is destined to bring an end to destiny, and you can interpret that freely. Yeah, and in a way, consciousness and what the church calls original sin are sort of the same thing, aren't they? So, well, knowledge, basically, free will. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay, well, thank you. That was most pithily <laughs> expressed. Thanks very much, Joe. So we haven't even actually gotten to a summary of, of, the, <laughs> of the Amber Spyglass yet. Um, but actually, James, I'd be really keen to hear your summary of The Amber Spyglass, because this is a, a novel that I read as a child. It's probably going to be the only time in my life in, on this podcast that I can say, well, back in my day. <laughs> no, no, no. No, back in your day, I'll be very interested. We'll get onto that, what, how, what, what you made of it as a child, because coming to at my, at my great age, it, it's, it's not um, obvious why it's a children's book, really. I mean, it's, it, well, it's got children in it and children are there. Of the are the heroes, but um, but it's quite a complicated. And, I mean, there aren't many children's books that make you want to reread John Milton's Paradise Lost, <laughs> but this really does because it's quite heavily, heavily based on it. Give it a bash. Go on, tell us what it's about. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try. It's a bit like that uh, Monty Python thing of summarise Proust in thirty seconds. But I'll, <laughs> well, I'll give it a go. Uh, so we, uh, this book starts with uh, Lara, a prisoner of uh, the woman who's turned out to be a mother, who at this stage uh, is one of the book's big baddies, Mrs. Coulter, um, beautiful but deadly, her, <laughs> uh, her demon being a golden monkey of a slightly vicious kind. I always wanted that monkey. <laughs> no, it's a pretty cool gold monkey. And she's got Lara drugged in a cave, really. And at this stage, because she's a baddie, we're not quite sure whether she's up to no good or whether, as she claims, she's trying to protect Lara from the fact that basically, at this point, Lara's the sort of MacGuffin of the book. Everyone's heading towards this cave in the Himalayas where Lara is holed up. Uh, including the magisterium, which is boo the church, uh, <laughs> the goodies trying to fix her, uh, trying to rescue her, and uh, various types of goodies, and also Will, uh, the boy with the with the with the subtle knife, um, and they do rescue her, and she has had in the meantime a vision of Roger, the the guy you mentioned who got killed, and she decides that what they need to do is visit the house of the dead, the home world of, the, of death, the dead, the world of the dead. Thank you, and. Uh, Rescue everybody, uh, which with the aid of the subtle knife they do, they have unbelievably sort of powerful and tense and thought-provoking passages in which they do visit the world of the dead and manage to free the people there. And because this is essentially an atheist book, I think, really, mm. so, that, but, so they are liberated from their sort of boredom and hideousness of a, of a magisterium-based afterlife, which is not heavenly in the slightest. It just means you hang around 
and they rescue people and they disappear into the, their atoms dissolve and they disappear back into the universe with great pleasure. Um, there's then the biggest, biggest showdown, which is between the forces of good and, and evil, really. I, I'd be interested to know how much you think Pullman's heart is in the big showdown, because in most books like this, and particularly most children's books like this, you might imagine that the, the big clash between the forces of good and evil. It's like a whole movie sequence. Yeah, you think just, it would take and, a long time. And also the big, big finish. It's done in a few pages with 100 pages still to go Yeah. before he sort of gets back to his, his main concerns, which is the attempt, I think, of the goodies, which Lord Azrael has now become. Mm. Mrs. Coulter <laughs> seems to have been... I would flip that. See, I think Azrael is still a terrible person and Coulter's the one who actually redeems herself. <laughs> I mean, she does redeem herself by, much to her surprise, loving her daughter, doesn't yeah. she? And so she, those two, I think it's hard to do this without spoiler alerts, but um, those two eventually destroy a god, essentially. Well, God himself, the authority, is by this time so tired and old and everything that as soon as he sort of meets the air, he dissolves. Yeah. It's quite, which made me think, funnily enough, of um, sort of the disappearance of Catholic Ireland in recent years, where this <laughs> thing that seemed absolutely rock solid just suddenly goes. Huh. Anyway, those two sacrifice themselves getting rid of the Megatron uh, figure. The, the Jesus, Metatron. The Metatron, thanks. Megatron is Transformers, <laughs> thanks. I think. No, thanks very much. No, you, you are definitely my Philip Pullman uh, vocabulary consultant. Uh, <laughs> So anyway, they destroy him, the Jesus one. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, he's not Jesus. That's actually really important. Is he's, he the archangel? Michael? He's like a regent because at this point, the the authority or God himself is kind of trapped in a crystal box. You can tell I read this as a child and took it really seriously. <laughs> but he's trapped in a crystal box and he's too ancient to do anything. So the Metatron is sort of like an authoritarian-like figure who intends to start intervening in human life on behalf of God. So he's more the church than Jesus, you think? The, he, the sort of, the sort of... I think in Pullman's mind, he kind of represents the authoritarianism of the Catholic Church. And God himself is this kind of non-entity who is used as a kind of stand-in to justify heinous, heinous oh, acts. Because Pullman wrote the book Fellows, which I must say I haven't read, called The Good Man, Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. I haven't read didn't that he? either. Which, which I believe is based on the fact that Jesus himself, good bloke. <laughs> I think Famously. I, I, thought, I, thought, I possibly, yes, that's right. Uh, same here, like, good bloke. Uh, but, um, but Christ is sort of shadowy alter ego the, is the churchy bit. Uh, mm. a, a line by Tom Waits, you can say this is gospel, but I say that it's only church. Uh, so anyway, so, okay, so, so the, uh, the Metatron's that. Uh, they, get, they get rid of him, as I say, in this slightly anticlimactic big climax, and then it settles down back to... Lara and Will essentially falling in love and we begin to realise what the real sort of climax of the book, which is the transition from innocence to experience. You, yes. We mentioned the difference between children and adults in where their demons work and in various other ways throughout the book. And the big change comes when Lara basically has a sexual awakening. Yeah. Uh, and a sexual awakening, oddly enough, cut in America. <laughs> I, I might just uh, read this so... so James James always manages to to make this sound dirty. No, there's, there's I was really, saying to him really, last got, night that a, it was so wholesome in my mind before he read it no, to me. No, I've got a proper I've got a proper dirty bit coming up later. <laughs> but well, the other one character we haven't mentioned is uh, someone called Mary Malone, who's yes. a doctor in um, our version of Oxford, so Will's version of Oxford, who uh, Lyra contacts, and she's been studying the dust thing, uh, as as sort of dark as dark matter in yes. our, our modern scientific understanding. But she makes contact with it and then joins the universe, in, the universe in which they all there. And she talks about how she used to be a nun, and then she discovered human love, really. Yeah. And 
that was made her think. I mean, it, it's slightly, there's a possible author's message here. She says, I used to be a nun, you see. I thought physics could be done to the glory of God till I saw there wasn't any God at all. And the, the physics was more interesting anyway. <laughs> but that, that anyway, after that author's message, she talks about love. And then it says, as, as, Mar, as Mary said that, Lara felt something strange happen to her body. She felt a stirring at the roots of her hair. She found herself breathing faster. She had never been on a roller coaster or, or anything like one, but if she had, she would have recognised the sensations in her breast. They were exciting and frightening at the same time, and she had not the slightest idea why. The sensation continued and deepened and changed as more parts of her body found themselves affected too. Uh, the passage is entirely cut from the American edition. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, but that, she, she's 13, isn't she, at this stage? Uh, it's the transition from innocence to experience in a way of, of which Pullman clearly approves that the fall of man is a good thing. Yeah. And... I think that, I think I'll end the summary there. There is a sort of heartbreaking climax, but maybe we should sp spare the spoil. Yeah. Maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should not spoil that. But essentially, well, you just spoiled it, James. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, maybe we'll maybe we'll cut there. <laughs> so the question, the question, as I say, first question that sprung to mind for me, and I'd be very interested seeing as you read it as a kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this a children's book? I'm going to give a cop out of an answer and say yes and no. <laughs> My argument for no is that it's maybe sort of arbitrarily cast as a children's book purely for marketing purposes. That's absurd. Really. Paul's line, he's, 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 two things he seems to still be slightly annoyed about even after sort of 20 odd years is the idea that it's definitely a children's book. He, he argues that it was just published by children's publishers. And so that's, for example, why the American edition had to get rid of that, that the roller coaster of our body, yeah, uh, and also he, he resists the idea of fantasy because he thinks, in a way, it's quite just it's just quite realistic, but just in different worlds. Well, I mean, so I used to work as a as a bookseller for about three years, and the uh, thing that I always found really interesting is that shelving books, in particular sections or um, under various kind of genres or categories was mainly just a classification system to benefit the people selling the novel rather than the people buying it. So often I would have customers come up to me righteously outraged that a book they felt should be in social history or political science was in self-help, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in a way, I feel that way about Pullman in the sense that it's a deeply, deeply philosophical book that, as you say, does make you want to reread Milton. In my case, it really made me want to reread William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. Um, that's a lot of where Pullman drew his source material from as well. If I just interject, I think almost the key to it, certainly as Pullman sees, sees the key to the book, is Blake's famous comment on Milton, that Mil Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. <laughs> that the, Essentially, that Paradise Lesson is on the side of Satan for taking on the well, I mean, partly because uh, Milton himself was a regicide, wasn't he? He, was, he helped to overthrow Charles I. So the idea that you overthrow this great sort of authority figure. Yeah, is, but is, then is, I wonder Milton about Milton can't that. shake off the fact that that was quite a noble thing to try and do. I suppose I'd like to answer directly my question. Yeah. What on earth did you make of it when you read it as a kid? Yeah, so I was coming to this because actually what I made of it as a kid, I, I felt, again, quite powerfully while I was reading it this time around. Um, I cocooned myself for like one single day to reread this book in one massive chunk. And I felt much as I did as a child that I was just being taken on the most amazing adventure. And it was, it's not even nostalgia that I felt because the point at which I read it, you know, I was, I hated being a child. So I can't even say that I, it made me long for, for childhood. I think it's been 
so long since I read a novel that in some ways was quite straightforwardly a story that had this protagonist who is on a great quest and she has friends who help her on this quest and this really concrete world that has very specific laws and logic that you kind of learn by heart and learn to follow. And I got just as absorbed in it as I was when I was, I think I read this around 11 or 12. Around 11 or 12, none of the allegorical aspects of the book really registered on a rational surface level. So I wasn't, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but I I didn't really care too much about the... Was the church, you just saw that as as, as baddies rather than some sort of theological... See, my I think sort of, but I, I wasn't so concerned with picking apart the text to figure out. I, I was just happy to let Pullman carry me. And I think that's one of the things that in my eyes is what throws the idea of this being a children's book in doubt, but equally makes me feel like it really should be called a children's book because it's so open-ended and nuanced and subtle in a way that most of kids' literature really, really isn't. It's a book that asks children, if they're reading it, to make their own mind up over whether they're on the side of, you know, quote unquote, good or evil, what they make of various characters' actions, where their sympathies lie, but without moralizing, without really telling them how to feel or what to think. He kind of offers you this world, you know, this biblical retelling sheathed in in fantasy and allegory and make-believe and he just lets you go through it lightly and I I wish more children's literature was like that so I do want it to be yeah no that's that's interesting so if we, if we say it's not a children's book then we're underestimating children essentially yeah what, what like he treats yeah. children like they have a brain essentially and are are capable of kind of thinking through maybe not as in clear cut uh, fashion as adults do, but subconsciously thinking through how they see the world, what their morality is, where they align, in a way that a lot of other kids' books really, really don't. They get the impression even Philip Pullman hasn't got it all kind of nailed. I mean, yeah. he, talk, he talked afterwards about it. He, he wasn't sure he quite explained or he quite knew what dust was, even after he'd finished the whole book. You know, and, the, the, and there's sort of bits of stories that start, that come along and disappear. There's a bit where when they're going to the, uh, what is it, the world of the dead someone explains to Lara that we have our death with us at all times and that when the moment comes we're quietly sort of tapped on the shoulder and said okay okay mate it's, now you it's, go. it's, it's now it's a lovely well lovely but powerful idea that sort of goes away as well so there's just there are things that just sort of come and come and slightly go aren't there yeah. and all sorts of storytelling we maybe should talk about that well, I would say that someone who's a really instructive figure is Mary Malone, the woman who's supposed to play the serpent and tempt Lyra or, or basically just lead Lyra to adult knowledge or a sexual awakening. She's a really great example of how Pullman doesn't instruct, rather he just sort of guides here and there. There's a point where... I mean, up to, up to a point, I think. I think she's the nearest we get to an author's message. when she basically says that, you know, there is no God and physics is all. Well, see, I don't think she even really does because there's a point here when she's talking about, she's telling Lyra and Will what it was like to uh, leave the convent and stop being a nun and go in pursuit of science. And she's not very clear cut on how they should think about that either. 
She says, while she was at the church, I knew what I should think. It was whatever the church taught me to think. And when I did science, I had to think about other things altogether. So I never had to think about them for myself at all. But do you now, said Will? I think I have to, Mary said, trying to be accurate. When you stopped believing in God, he went on, did you stop believing in good and evil? No, but I stopped believing that there was a power of good and a power of evil that were outside us. And I came to believe that good and evil are names for what people do, not for what they are. All we can say that is good is a good deed because it helps someone, or that it's an evil one because it hurts them. People are too complicated to have simple labels. Yes, said Lyra firmly. Did you miss God? asked Will. Yes, Mary said. Terribly. And I still do. What I miss most is the sense of being connected to the whole of the universe. I used to feel I was connected to God like that, and because he was there, I was connected to the whole of his creation. But if he's not there, then... And she kind of trails off, and that trailing off is a really yeah. great sort no. of like... But but what then? What if? No, I think Pullman himself is a great interview, which I commend to our listeners, of him and Mary Beard on, on BBC iPlayer. Two basically old intellectual types just sort of talking about anything. Uh, but both of them sort of end up saying that they'd rather miss God, including Pullman. But uh, actually, just can I just score one for me? <laughs> that bit where it says people are too complicated to have simple labels. That's what I think is my... Yeah, uh, we, can't have uh, a demon. You can't have a single demon. Yeah, thank you very much for a single essence of yourself. Anyway, um, and then, so, so Milton, he's got in his sights where you know, the, the, the rebel angels take on God and and lose but this in this one it's sort of it's sort of an, it's a replay the rebel angels take on god and and win in this in in this yeah. book which is an astonishing ambitious thing to do in any book let alone a let alone a children's book even in milton i just, I just point out that when the fall happens the archangel michael explains to i think it's michael explains to adam what's going to happen from here on in and he says you know obviously the world's going to be much worse now that you've fallen but then jesus will come along and redeem us yeah redeem you all and there's the famous phrase where Adam says, oh, happy fall. So in fact, it was better to have fallen. So even Milton seems to be slightly on the side of original sin as well, as well as Pullman certainly is. That original, yeah. original sin is good because it, it, that's what makes us human. That well, it's not even sin, really. I felt no, like that, sin, was, yes, sin, that was the whole word. contention yes, you're right. of yes, yes, you're right. dust. Of, yeah. you, know, you, you think of it as first as sin, but really it's just human consciousness. Yes, that's right. Sorry, yes, original sin. In, yes, in what very, makes up all the universes in this world, what makes them function. Another thing, another, another writer that he's certainly got in his sights and has made no bones about it is C.S. Lewis, isn't it? In a way, this is a sort of answer to Narnia. He's, he's slightly backtrack on that over the years, but I think it, it sort of clearly is. And one thing he seems to hate about C.S. Lewis, and in fact, all ch classic children's literature, I think it's an interesting idea, that the, all the, the sort of golden age of children's literature is based on the idea that it's a bad thing to grow up. It would be great if we could just be children forever. Yeah, that's true. That I, I, makes I, me think of Roald Dahl. Yeah. And I think Susan at the end of Narnia isn't allowed into the equivalent of heaven because she's got sort of lipstick and started taking an interest in boys and so oh, on. Oh, yeah. And his, his point is that actually it's an extremely good thing to grow up. Yeah. That's what the dust is. Innocence becoming experience. Moving from innocence to experience is not a tragic falling off or not. No, it's not a tragic falling off, actually. It's, it's rather a triumphant thing to happen. No, it's great. There's a, at, at the end of the book, so Lyra has this device called an alethiometer and it, she can read it and basically discover the truth about anything. Um, and by the end of the book, uh, she loses her ability to read it around the same time that she sort of hits puberty and, and comes into her 
version of knowledge and sexual awakening. And she really despairs over this because she feels like it's the only talent she had was to be able to intuit all of the knowledge in the world. And there's this really beautiful passage where uh, I think a witch says to her, you used to be able to read it by grace, but now you're going to have to read it through knowledge. You're going to have to work and learn how to do it properly. And that's such a beautiful analogy of moving from being a child to an adult in a, you know, without the scariness of it, or maybe actually with the scariness, but it makes it seem a lot more positive that before you were sort of floundering around and doing things however you could. But at a certain point, you you just build your life and you learn how to do these things that you are kind of stumbling around with properly and in a way that has purpose and is sort of more beneficial to you as opposed to other people, which is how the alethiometer yeah. was being used previously. Yes, no, th I think that's true. And I would slightly backtrack on my idea that innocence to experience is just a great triumph because there is, it does involve loss, doesn't it, as well? Yeah. Um, uh, is that you, you, I think you know the Blake songs of innocence and experience better than I do. Is, yeah. that, is that is that got the same thing that it's... Yeah. It's, be, it's better. <laughs> to, to, to summarise the entire <laughs> Blake thing, it's better and worse. <laughs> no, but it's really, really true. So for those who haven't read... Songs of Innocence and Experience. They're kind of two pamphlets made into one book and the poems are parallels of each other. So uh, you have the first bit, Songs of Innocence, which are these really beautiful, straightforward, sometimes couplets, but basically with a very regular rhyming scheme about light and the creation of life and how happy and joyful it is to be a child or a person. And then these are kind of replayed in the second bit of the book as songs of experience, which are a lot more insidious and complex and, you know, things like sex or wrath or revenge start to creep in. Uh, the poem that people will know, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Yes, which Does is that, a that, counterpart to The Little Lamb. So Yeah, so it's Little Lamb in Innocence, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright in the yeah. forests of the night. In, I in, love that in, poem because it contains those beautiful sets of lines when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. It's yeah. just amazing poetry. Go read them if you haven't. I think even Songs of Experience counters the idea of simplicity in those first books, but in a way it's so much... Uh, better. <laughs> like they're much more, even if you think about them on a kind of line by line sense, the poems are a, a greater achievement in a way. They're more pleasurable to read. They're a lot more complex. The first ones you kind of bounce through without really thinking much about them. And then the second set, you feel a lot more kind of enriched, presumably for, you know, the experience of innocence. I think it's a lot like Pullman in the sense that, like Mary Malone says, there is no inherent good or evil. There's just the experience of what your actions mean. Yeah, and 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 um, he does say, I, I think at the, at the end of at the end of the Amber Spyglass has certainly said in interviews that basically everything he's ever read is in these books. So we've done we've done Milton, we've done uh, C.S. Lewis, which he's read and hated, Milton, <laughs> which he's read and loved, Blake. But there's also well, there's there's epic stuff. He used to be a teacher in, and uh, he, he said he, in that interview with Mary Beard that I mentioned, he laments the fact that teachers have to stick to a curriculum, because he used to tell his uh, he basically used to tell his uh, pupils stories from the Iliad mm. and the Odyssey, and he uh, I couldn't pull them in the Iliad, them in the absolute palm of his hand, and he time 
a cliffhanger for the bell. He prided himself <laughs> on that. <laughs> and he wouldn't be allowed to do that as a teacher anymore. I do slightly wonder if the pupils did think that or whether they thought, oh, bloody hell, oh, Mr. Pullman's off on one again. But anyway, um, there's, so there's, there's certainly epic stuff. There's even bits of the Western. There's, there's, there's a, yeah. an armoured bear that we, ha we, we haven't mentioned. Yurik Bernison. The very, the very I same. love the names in this book. Yeah, Yurik Bernison. And we Lee first Scoresby meet him, he, and Aeronaut, yeah. this very Western figure. Yes, he is. And when we first meet uh, Yurik. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're definitely better on your Pullman <laughs> vocab than me. Uh, he's basically a washed up old gun gunslinger, isn't he? Yeah. He's like having, he's, he's boozing. He's a drunk. Yeah, and he's boozing and he's, he's, he's just in this barding. We should clarify, this is in the, in the first book uh, yeah. rather than this yes, one. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. Uh, and, and Lyra basically gets him to saddle up and fight, you yeah. know, to come out one more time. Um, I think that, that's good. See, there's a bit of Proust in there as well because uh, Mary Malone's remembrance of how when she's a nun yeah is that when she was a girl she had some marzipan at a party at the time at the same time as she rather fancied a boy yeah and then when she's being at a conference for an for an, uh when she is a nun this rather handsome man feeds her some marzipan oh my god <laughs> and, that's, and, and, and she remembers that thing and that's the end of i hadn't made that connection that's, that's the end of god really <laughs> once that once that marzipan goes in <laughs> it's, what is it in the proust it's, uh, it's madeleine the, cake it's the madeleine yeah. yeah so we take the madeleine cake dipped in tea and suddenly this yeah. whole the whole memory comes back um and also as you say an adventure yarn with lots of fighting yeah and all pretty much seamlessly mixed you, you kind of forget as you're going along because there's this like huge sense of adventure that they're kids and what is happening to them <laughs> fighting rebel angels being exploited by adults um is really like prolifically heavy stuff one, one little trope i noticed that there's no matter what happens no matter how many you know, after the most ferocious battle with armored bears and witches and spirits and uh, uh, they always, just, they always get a good kip, don't they? Lara, yeah. Lara just, just goes to sleep. They need anybody, it. Yeah. I found that... She's just always just going to sleep. I think I'd be slightly restless after the day after that day, but she's just like, okay. No, but <sighs> you know what I really love is that, like, yeah, they, ha they do all of this, and then he's very careful to be like, and their bodies really hurt. They were sore. Yeah. They were dirty. It's not like a, you know, a lot of... Um, Fantasy novels, sorry to Philip Pullman, but I think this does come under the, the category of fantasy. That doesn't limit it to anything no, else, no. but it is partially a fantasy novel. You, people will just like magically be okay after a whole day of like trekking over the mountains yeah. or, you know, they'll just bounce along to the next chapter. Whereas Pullman is like, no, these people are knackered. They're at the no. edge of their... No, I, I, that's true. I know, I, one of the, the price of getting the subtle knife is Will has to lose two of his fingers. Yeah. And I kept expecting those to grow back in some magical way. They don't, do they? No, they really don't. Uh, and uh, they uh, hurt yeah, and for, uh, for like uh, two yeah, books. Uh, yeah, yeah, they do. It's great. And the only thing that I like uh, thinks strays away from that um logic but which i don't mind because i have a massive crush on her is miss coulter who is sort of eternally poised and beautiful no matter what happens to her if she's disheveled within like five minutes she's back yeah. to looking great and um i would i would argue that's a slightly unrealistic uh female standard but then again i love miss coulter and i i had a crush on her when i was little and i still have a crush on her now so i'm fine with it i think philip pullman might join you in that crush actually <laughs> I, I rather get the impression but on the on the non-fantasy side as well there's, there's also a bit at the beginning of of uh, the amber spyglass where he finds um uh a rucksack that's uh, belongs to someone who's, who's recently died mm. and one of the things he takes out of it is kendall mint, mint cake so for the first you know, few chapters, he's chewing Kendall mint cake, which again you is that a real thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, go. 
Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's uh, and it's it's particularly sort of it, well, because Kendall is in the Lake District. When, when did that go out of fashion? <laughs> I don't think it ever did, did it, Joe? Uh, it's, it's certainly uh, it's certainly big with hikers in the Lake District. <laughs> okay, cool. Kendall, it's it's very and it gives you loads of energy, especially sugar, very minty. Nice. Uh, and did you, did you see the film in which Nicole Kidman, I, I believe, did. stars Mrs. As, as Mrs. Coulter? Yeah, I, I'm I'm Team Ruth Wilson. Okay, loved Ruth Wilson since Luther. We're just airing out all my crushes. I mean, clearly that was meant to be the first of its trilogy. And my understanding of why it, why it wasn't, it did, it did pretty well all over the world, but didn't do very well in America because of it being anti-religious. But he's quoted in quite a lot of American sources as saying, I want to undermine the Christian faith. <laughs> in fact, not only that, as he told the Washington Post in 2001. Now, I don't know if, uh, I mean... I, First of all, fine if you, if, you know that's, that's that seems okay to me. But 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 if he did actually say that, or whether that just sort of passed around. But anyway, it, it didn't do very well in America. I feel like that that opens up two interesting conversations. The first is um, Pullman saying that he wants to undermine Christian faith. If he did say that in the, in those stock if, terms, if that's what I'm did, slightly you know, contentious. But um, yeah. I think you know I view this book more as an anti establishment ergo anti-church book more than one that's anti-spirituality and there are several points in the book where this idea of spirituality because what is the concept of a soul if not yeah, spiritual no, no, yeah, yeah. is is given a lot of credence um alongside essentially the work that Pullman carries out as an author and I, I'm not dissing it because you know I just rewrote my second book and I frequently found myself telling people that I was swinging between crippling depression and a god complex and it's very similar in this set of novels where you know perhaps church is bad but the idea of um a spiritual imagination um or spiritual living isn't so bad because it enables narrative imagination it enables all the things that basically lead one to write a novel. No, I, I, I was working on theory, which I haven't fully worked out. That that, that idea that of Blake's that Milton was on of the devil's party without knowing it, whether Pullman's of God's party without yeah. knowing it. Okay, Joe. Well, I did promise you that I had worse filth than the bit before, so I'm afraid prepare to have your childhood dreams slightly shattered. It's even not more. dreams, James. It's memories. It's <laughs> heartfelt memories that you're ruining right now. And here we go with those. <laughs> Memory ruining lines. Um, so this is Will and Lyra. Will put his hand on hers. A new mood had taken hold of him, and he felt resolute and peaceful. Knowing exactly what he was doing and exactly what it would mean, he moved his hand from Lyra's wrist and stroked the red gold fur of her demon. Lyra gasped. Well, you would, but her surprise, <laughs> but, but her surprise, but her surprise was mixed with the pleasure. So like the joy that flooded through her when she had put the fruit to his lips that she couldn't protest because she was breathless. With a racing heart, she responded in the same way. She put her hand on the silky warmth of Will's demon, and as her fingers tightened in the fur, she knew that Will was feeling exactly what she was. Come on, that is filth. Thanks, James. <laughs> um, I suppose one thing we shouldn't forget is that this is a Booker Prize podcast, and yeah. we haven't mentioned the Booker Prize yet, um, apart from the fact that this was, well... I introduced it as the only children's book ever long listed for the Booker Prize. Where, where do we stand on the curious incident of the dog in the night time? This is where it all gets a little, because that was long listed as well. I haven't yeah. read it. So. I, I, I've read it. I think, I think it's really good. And I've no idea if it's a children's book or not, but then I felt the same about his dark materials. Yeah. I think, it, I think 
It's very well, maybe interesting. Maybe it isn't, I don't think. I don't think it is necessarily. I was, so I don't want to invalidate my own introduction, maybe. No, no, no. But, um, uh, so this is the only one. And it, I mean, it was a good year, 2001. It was won by True History of the Kelly Gang. Um, although the, the hot favourite was Atonement by uh, Ian McEwan. I think it's, it's really good. Oh, it's amazing. Um, Another child at the centre of the narrative indeed, in that one. Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, you might be more in touch again, uh, if such a thing can be imagined, with, kind of, <laughs> with recent children's literature. But um, uh, it, it should, I mean, is, is there lots of great stuff going on in children's books? Should, should more children's books have been shortlisted or longlisted for the book, do you think? I can't quite think of any children's um, books that match what Pullman does in the His Dark Materials trilogy. And I was also a huge fan of um, the Sally Lockhart series, which he also wrote. And those don't hand, hold a candle to these either. I feel like he's created an incredibly singular achievement. It's interesting because there's nothing in um, Booker submissions guidelines that stops people from submitting children's fiction or any kind of genre fiction. The remit is just that you need to believe that it's good quality literature um, that the author is alive at the time of submission, I think, um, that the work is published in English and that the press that publishes it um, releases two books or two novels a year. That's uh. that's the only thing you really need to submit for the Booker Prize. I was running through what I read as a child last night to see if there's anything I, I wished had made it on a book a long list or short list I really couldn't think of anything that's not to say that I didn't have some great reading through childhood Enid Blyton, Roald Dahl, um, Lemony Snicket although he wouldn't have uh, qualified at that point because Americans hadn't been let in yet and I do wonder you know if a series of unfortunate events were to be published as one massive book would that stand a chance because that's similarly kind of morally murky and, yeah. and strange but maybe the I don't know that these books are really incomparable yeah. to, to to anything. I, I must say, I, I I nothing I read as a child I, I would think would be the, book as you listen. My, my memory, uh, which is now getting a bit, it, it is cutting from sort of William and Billy Bunter <laughs> and, and straight to Agatha Christie at about the age of ten or eleven. Yeah, no, I did something and, and, similar. And, or, or twelve even, and then uh, I read things like The Silver Sword is a really good book. But I think that was the fifties. There was a, ones you read that you thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's a bit of cut above the, my usual fare. To our faithful listeners, if there is a children's book that you can think of that, you know, could potentially have been long-listed, short-listed, or even one, please, please tell us. The only thing that's really creeping to my mind, and I'm not sure because I read it so long ago, but it's something like Neil Gaiman's Stardust. But again, can you really call that a, a children's book? Um, I'd love, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear about a a cut children's book that could have potentially made it onto a book along list at least okay so uh, so i suppose well, again what seems to be becoming a traditional uh question is uh, who would you recommend this to children adults everyone i'm, I'm with you i think everyone, everyone. I mean, I, 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 and this is this, <laughs> this was just not i think the reason i'd never read it before is it doesn't seem a direct mail shot yeah partly marketed as a children's book partly it is quite fantasy, which is not one of my big favourite things. No, but and, it's but, so but it's, it's so it's so much it's so much else, and, and so so much of everything. Yes, and I think it's fantastic. I would warmly recommend it to anybody. Actually, okay, Joe. Time for our, our book a clinic, okay. uh, which where we answer questions from uh, from listeners uh, about uh, in recommending books to. 
help them solve their problems. What's our, pro- what's our problem today that we're solving instantly? Our, pro- our problem today, having survived the trials of early parenthood, my children are now sleeping through and I have sufficient time and mental concentration to start reading again. What book should I choose to reintroduce me to the joys of reading? Okay, let me take, let me take a couple of shots at this. Uh, as ever, slightly off the top of the head. Um, I always think for the joys of reading, for sheer pleasure, I would always recommend Raymond Chandler. I think um, they're brilliant. They're, and I've read them, you know, when sick, or my, my mama read them when having children. It, 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 maybe it's just a family thing, but it, when you just, it, they're, they're wonderful to read and they're not hard, but they are brilliant. Uh, they are, you know, it's the classic hard-boiled, sort of invented LA hard-boiled um, detective fiction. You know, things like it was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, But interestingly enough, Chandler himself was an English public schoolboy, went to Dulwich. And um, we've had this before, but uh, Chandler and uh, P.G. Woodhouse both had the same English teacher at Dulwich College. I mean, imagine, imagine looking back on your teaching career and thinking, well, I taught two of the greatest stylists of the 20th century. Um, so uh, Chandler, and then if you want to sort of flashback and, or to celebrate the fact that you're free of this, I think one of the best writers about um, having small children is Helen Simpson, who wrote, perhaps significantly wrote short stories rather than epic novels because she had small children. Uh, and there's one scene I remember in particular where the couple are on holiday with their small kids and the husband sort of goes off rather suspiciously for an hour, an hour and a half. And when he comes back, you know, it's not that he's drunk or that he's been, you know, on the beach, you know, uh, or anything. And she realizes what's up and she says to him, you've been reading. <laughs> and the poor bloke has just snuck off for an hour with his book and uh, obviously not not allowed I th- and i think this the, the collection that I've, i'm pretty sure i'm thinking of is uh, her first one four bare legs in a bed she then goes on to write about having older children than that but if you want to remember those sleepless hideous nights then uh, i think it's four bare legs in a bed by helen simpson i recommend all their works it's fantastic i did have a like um rough patch in reading around the end of my undergraduate degree because I'd done so much of it and I really just didn't want to do any more. And the thing that got me back into it um, were the Patrick Melrose novels by Edward St. Auburn. And I think Mother's Milk at some point was either long-listed or short-listed. Short-listed, Because yeah, yeah. I had a friend on the, on the, on the judging panel who was absolutely heartbroken that uh, Mother's Milk didn't win. Well, Mother's Milk, I don't know <laughs> if, if for, for your personal purposes um dear listener this really works because it is a book about family upheaval generally and the main character Patrick Melrose is kind of suffering both the breakdown of his marriage and also his mother has requested that she um, that he aid her in committing suicide um but that's that makes it sound really really heavy but it's so pithily done and I mean funny it's really funny it's so line funny. by line it's really really funny and they are fairly um slender books the whole of them or yeah. four of them I think it is uh, I think five, five by the end it, it's a lot but like each one is actually quite slim yeah, and you you'd think they'd be tragic because they do concern fairly tragic family subject matter but the thing is Edward St Auburn is so scathing and I think the thing that really um brought me back to reading because of those books was just remembering that I could laugh at a novel yeah, even yeah. if it did contain serious I subject know, matter it, it, I could cackle funny. Okay. I don't know the second that you've reminded me that if you want to uh, read a Raymond Chandler that's got a slightly smug title in the circumstances The Big Sleep yeah <laughs> <laughs> you can finally have a big sleep um, but if you have a dilemma you think the books might remedy be honest with you um, 
obviously before we actually went on air, the problems were coming from the four corners of the producer's uh, laptop. <laughs> now, uh, we want to throw it open to everybody. Uh, so please do uh, send any queries you might have to the Booker Clinic. Which you can do by sending an email to contact us at bookerprizefoundation.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a rating and a review. You can also sign up to our Substack at the Book of Prizes, where you'll get long reads, exclusive content and prize updates. And finally, please do follow us on all our socials at the Book of Prizes. Thanks so much. And of course, we don't say that in a needy way. Uh, <laughs> it's been great to be with you today. It's talking about Philip Pullman uh, and it's goodbye from me. And me. See you next time. Bye. Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Subiot production for the Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.